next generation of athletes that have the option to play anywhere else in the world, and they say, no, nah, I'm, I'm going to come to EMLS because I see the value that can be brought. Messi mania comes to the U.S. Can he reshape Major League Soccer? For Sunday, July 23rd, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. More and more Republican-controlled states are passing restrictions on transgender medical care as more and more states where Democrats hold power protect them. How these laws are making families weigh whether it's time to move. Our lives have been turned upside down by someone who can flippantly say, well, just let the courts decide. And in this week's Enlighten Me, how people continue to shape our everyday lives, even long after they're gone. I'm of the belief that one doesn't move past loss Grief makes a home, I think, within us if we allow it to. All that and more after these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. In Ukraine, Russian strikes overnight in Odessa left more than 20 historic buildings damaged, including a landmark cathedral in the city. One person is dead, nearly two dozen are injured. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Antony Blinken says while Ukraine has reconquered half the territory that Russia initially seized in its invasion, Kyiv faces a very hard fight to win back more. Now Ukraine is in a battle to get back uh, more of the land that Russia seized from it. It's already taken back about 50% of what was initially seized. Now they're in a very hard fight uh, to take back uh, to take back more. Speaking there to CNN. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is recovering from an emergency heart procedure. It's the latest twist as Israel's domestic crisis surges with protests against a contentious law set to pass on Monday. And Pierce Daniel Estrin has more from Tel Aviv. Netanyahu's office says the 73-year-old prime minister is recuperating from an emergency heart pacemaker implantation and is expected to be released from the hospital Monday to attend the vote on a judicial overhaul that legal experts say would give the government some unchecked powers because it would block Israel's judiciary from being able to overturn government appointments and decisions. Many former security leaders and Mossad spy chiefs say the legislation poses a security threat, with thousands of military reservists threatening not to serve in protest. There have been rallies for and against the legislation, and Israel's President Isaac Herzog met Netanyahu at the hospital to try to broker an agreement with the opposition. The president said this is a time of emergency. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. A wildfire in southern Washington state has exploded in size, sending residents fleeing. As NPR's Amy Held reports, the blaze has burned through structures and is threatening others. In Klickitat County, Washington, just north of the Oregon border, officials have gone door to door telling residents to leave now. The Newell Road fire was sparked Friday, burning through grass, brush and timber. It took less than 24 hours to reach 30,000 acres and growing, driven by hot, dry winds. Alan Leibovitz is with the state's Department of Natural Resources. We are under a red flag warning. That's a firefighter's worst nightmare because the humidity is dropping precipitously, the winds are picking up, and so the fire carries extremely fast, and the fuels that it does encounter are very receptive. The county is under a state of emergency as the fire threatens homes, farms, and a natural gas pipeline. Amy Held, NPR News. This week, President Biden will establish a national monument honoring Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley. Emma was the black teenager from Chicago who was tortured and killed in 1955 after being accused of whistling at a white woman. He was lynched and his mother insisted on an open casket, which helped galvanize the civil rights movement. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Three people reportedly suffered serious injuries this afternoon when a small plane crashed in a wooded residential area in the town of Stowe. The Cessna went down in a field near houses on Taylor Road, just south of Minuteman Airfield. The injured were airlifted to area hospitals. There was no immediate information on the extent of injuries or what caused the crash. The National Transportation Safety Board and FAA will investigate. Calls for safer city streets are growing louder as Boston police continue to search for a hit-and-run driver who killed a four-year-old boy in Hyde Park last week. Appearing on WBUR's Radio Boston, Tufts University urban policy expert Mark Chase said speed played a big factor in this tragedy. If you do hit someone, you're likely to kill them. So I did look at the street and it looked like a pretty wide street that can carry a lot of traffic between two major arterials. So there would be a big temptation to speed there. A video released by police shows a silver subcompact SUV driving at a higher than normal speed. Beacon Hill lawmakers are looking at the secondary market for concert tickets. The Joint Committee on Consumer Protection will hold a hearing tomorrow on a bill that would impose new regulations on the resale of tickets to entertainment and sporting venues. The action is being taken following the exorbitant markup on tickets to recent Taylor Swift concerts in Foxborough. The lawyers for civil rights in Boston say small business owners are turning to them for help to address new trends the owners are confronting. The group's Priya Lane says they offer free advice on a range of topics. Often these small businesses don't know what they don't know. And so they can come to us, we can talk to them about forming an entity, intellectual property concerns, taxes, contracts, all those little things that is easy to ignore but good to get right from the start. Lane says more than 200 small business owners have attended the most recent free legal workshop. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. A few nights ago, producer Brianna Scott and I went to Washington, D.C.'s Navy Yard. It was hot. It was humid. But there was a lot of excitement. Thousands of sports fans were there in this neighborhood that just a few years ago hosted the World Series. This crowd was focused on soccer and headed into the home of D.C.'s Major League Soccer team, the United, to watch the league's all-star game. As rabid as many of the fans were about soccer, they acknowledge that here in the U.S., this kind of scene is still kind of a rarity. America is considered the best when it comes to the majority of sports. Basketball, hockey, baseball, football, um, lacking in soccer, though. So Isaac Diorio is one of the many soccer fans we spoke to as they headed into the All-Star game. A squad made up of the best players in the league was taking on one of the English Premier League's most storied clubs, Arsenal. Many of the people we spoke to were clearly avid soccer fans, like Patrick Fleming and his dad, Chris. I think that the world community of soccer is something so special that is nothing compares to it. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I always told him it doesn't matter where you are in the world, you can always find a game. That's, that's soccer. There's no other sport. <laughs> 
just maybe not fans of the MLS. How often do you go to MLS games? Not ever. That's Andreas Gazau, and he's not the only person we spoke to who had never gone to an MLS game. MLS is hoping that's about to change. Arguably soccer's greatest of all time, the GOAT, if you will, has come to play in America. Argentina native Lionel Messi walked away from Europe and turned out a monstrous contract offer in Saudi Arabia to come play for Inter Miami. Messi has been the defining soccer great of his generation, and the fans of the All-Star game were excited. He's like, oh, LeBron James. LeBron or like Michael Jordan, uh, Wayne Gretzky. Think of Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, LeBron James of soccer, right? Messi's arrival has many people wondering what it means for soccer in the U.S. He means so much more than just soccer, right? He's transcended the sport. Getting international players in the MLS just helps raise the bar for like American soccer. And more specifically, what it means for a league that has long struggled to take that next step and break into that top tier of U.S. leagues. Is it that bringing Messi in is going to attract more of a foreign audience to the MLS? Or is it going to turn on more Americans to keep watching soccer now that we have a worldwide star? We'll have to wait and see. In our Sunday cover story, as MLS is about to mark its 30th anniversary, it's closer to the other American major leagues, football, baseball, hockey, and basketball, than ever before. But it still lags far behind those top European leagues. At the same time... The MLS Messi era began Friday night when he came off the bench for Miami in the second half of a game against Mexico's Cruz Azul. He delivered on the hype, scoring a game-winning goal in extra time. Here's the call from Apple TV. Messi! I think it's exciting to have really one of the biggest names in soccer history come to the U.S. Jasmine Gars covers criminal justice and immigration for NPR. She loves soccer and Messi in particular. Jasmine is from Argentina, and last year, ahead of the World Cup, she hosted a bilingual podcast, The Last Cup, all about Messi and what he means to Argentina and really the globe. Every corner of the world, there are kids who are wearing messy soccer jerseys. I've gone on assignment as a reporter to Uganda and Bangladesh and Europe and <laughs> everywhere in the world. There is a child wearing a messy jersey. Every award or trophy you can think of, Messi has won it. He scored hundreds and hundreds of goals, running around the soccer field, making his opponents look silly. Gol de Leo Messi sobre la bocina. He topped it all off last year, finally winning the World Cup. We want him to feel that he's part of the MLS family. Don Garber has been the MLS commissioner since 1999, when no one really viewed it as an actual major league like the NFL or Major League Baseball. The league launched after the 1994 World Cup with great fanfare. World Cup was very successful in the United States. And then we went through a period in the early 2000s that where we were thinking of shutting the league down, going through, you know, contracting teams. The teams were mostly playing to small crowds in cavernous NFL stadiums. And no one watching the games was confusing the New York, New Jersey Metro Stars and other MLS squads 
for Real Madrid or other iconic European clubs. And then we get a call that maybe David Beckham would like to come to Los Angeles. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct pleasure and honor to introduce to Los Angeles and the world the newest member of the LA Galaxy, Mr. David Beckham. In 2007, Beckham was in a similar spot as Messi is now, a globally famous sports superstar. And at that time, it was just spectacular. And the crowds were enormous. And David could have gave us the cultural moments that MLS didn't have, that the NBA and the NFL does have, and then just became another player. Injuries and the trials and tribulations and ultimately winning championships. And if not for David, there's no Messi. And frankly, I would say if not for David coming here in 2007. I'm not sure the league would be on the trajectory that we have been on. The league has kept growing in the decade and a half since. Most teams play in brand new soccer-specific stadiums. Fans are filling the seats. I asked Garber about what comes next. I've heard you talk a lot about comparing MLS to the big European soccer leagues, and I've heard you talk a lot about comparing it to the big domestic leagues and other sports in the U.S. In the long term, which is more important to you as you think about the next steps for the league to make? It really is being part of the global conversation of international football. At the end of the day, we're competing against big established soccer football leagues that have enormous reach and fan bases that have 100 years of history, that have got generational support. And that's the marketplace, that's the audience, particularly with a global media partner, that we're very focused on. How do you close that gap? Because you can you can have as much momentum as you want, but we're talking about a moment in time where, where it feels like trillions of dollars are being spent at some of these big European clubs. Just the money is more than ever before. The, the global rights are more than ever before. It just seems to be on another stratosphere. We're still in the earliest days of MLS, right? You think about the lifespan of a company is, you know, they look at it in generations in a 20-year period. We're still babies on that path. So we look at really what the future opportunity is. And if you think about things like our development programs, our homegrown player systems, our transfers that continue to grow in terms of our sales of international players, all of them are beginning to be part of the global conversation. And eventually being part of that family ultimately is going to lead to the kinds of opportunities like the Lionel Messi opportunity. Last thing, I have heard you and so many other people at MLS talk about all the things you're excited about with Messi. What's the thing you're most worried about? Is there anything you think this has to go right? Yeah, I mean, listen, he has to get totally inculcated into the culture of being in America. And people thought we set up the stunt where he went to a public supermarket. We actually didn't, you know. He, the guy wanted to go to the supermarket, right? And people down in Miami are big soccer fans, and they say, hey, that's Messi, and eventually asked his wife for the keys to the car, and he went in the car and probably listened to the radio, you know. He probably wasn't doing that in Barcelona. He probably wasn't doing that in Barcelona. So I think there's a lot of time that he's going to have to work with all the people around him and with the club just to get comfortable. So that was Don Garber, the commissioner of Major League Soccer. And when you think about his goal of making MLS at the same level as the European Soccer League, like the Premier League, it's clear standing outside the All-Star Game in D.C. how far he has to go. There are fans streaming into the stadium to go to this match between the MLS All-Stars and Arsenal. And it feels like 90% of the people walking into the stadium are wearing red Arsenal jerseys. They're here to see the British soccer team. I don't think it'll ever be what it is in Europe, but I don't think that means that it'll stay what it is. Still, many MLS fans really think the American League could blow up one day way down the line. 
Do you feel like MLS could ever be at that EPL level, ever be at that championship? Thousand percent. It's not a. It's not a. It's not a if. It's just a when. Yeah, I, I would never say never. Right in this case, it's just the U.S. is so far behind. Messi will help with that, and he'll be paid well for his efforts, earning between fifty and sixty million dollars a year. Plus, a unique agreement where he gets a cut of the revenue Apple makes from new subscriptions to its broadcasts of MLS games. It is more of the the Hollywood type model. Kenneth Shropshire is a professor emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. He's an expert on the business of sports, and he says there is no question Messi will boost the league in the short term. The whole question becomes, is this going to be sustained? And are you going to be able to hold on to fans that you might bring in and sponsors and endorsers and others? And Will there really be this next generation of athletes that have the option to play anywhere else in the world? And they say, no, I'm going to come to the MLS because I see the value that can be brought. (laughs) And then there'll be who will be the next one to get the Apple type deal. What happens on the field will be what matters most. We are moments away from the 2023 MLS All-Star Game. At the All-Star Game, MLS's top players lost to Arsenal, who was playing without its top roster, by a lopsided score of 5 nothing. Marquinhos, Havertz! A fifth for Arsenal. This matches the record for goals scored by an international club opponent against the MLS All-Stars. At the same time, they lost in front of a sellout crowd of 20,000 fans. And in a side of where things are headed, outside the stadium after the game, vendors were hawking bootleg pink Miami jerseys with Messi and his number 10 on the back. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. From 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Carpilio. Thanks so much for spending part of your Sunday with us. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. From the beach or at the park, on a walk or at your desk, the WBUR app makes it easy to tap and listen wherever the summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download the WBUR app today. In the forecast, mostly clear skies overnight with lows dropping into the 60s, sunny tomorrow and again on Tuesday, upper 80s both days. And looking ahead to Wednesday, sunny skies, temps on Wednesday could reach into the low 90s. Right now in Boston, it is still 85 degrees. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Israel's prime minister is recovering in a hospital after having a pacemaker implanted overnight. This a day ahead of a vote in parliament on Benjamin Netanyahu's plans to overhaul the country's judiciary. The 73-year-old says he plans to attend the vote in person. Ukraine says Russia struck critical infrastructure in the Black Sea area of Odessa overnight, damaging more than 20 historic buildings, including a landmark cathedral. One person is dead. Nearly two dozen are wounded. And at the weekend box office, Barbie took the top spot, bringing in an estimated $155 million in ticket sales. It's the biggest opening of the year and the top opening ever for a film directed by a woman. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. SmartMouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. And from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Today, we want to introduce you to Kat. Kat is 14 and loves the show Sherlock Holmes, the one starring Benedict Cumberbatch, to be clear. And it's always called Utah Home. Earlier this year, the state passed a ban on gender-affirming care for people under 18. It went into effect immediately in late January. And Kat, who's transgender, and Kat's family had to face one of the most difficult decisions of their lives, whether or not to leave Utah. Here's Kat's mom, Jen. I've always said, like, living here in Utah, I feel like a salmon trying to swim upstream. And I'm really tired. My fins are very worn. And we aren't using Jen or Kat's last name because they have concerns for their safety. But this is a story that we know is playing out all around the country. A lot of families are like Kat's. They're trying to make a big decision. And that decision isn't just about whether or not to leave. It's also about where to go. Often that's states like Minnesota, where elected officials have protected trans health care for both patients and providers. So we're going to talk more about this. We're going to go to Utah and Minnesota to do so. And I'm now joined by KUER's Sage Miller in Salt Lake City. Hey, Sage. Hi. And Minnesota Public Radio's Dana Ferguson in St. Paul. Hi, Dana. Hey. So we started hearing about a family in Utah there. But Dana, fill us in on what's going on in Minnesota. Yeah. So lawmakers here, because Democrats have the majority in the Senate, the House and the governor's office, were able to pass gender affirming care protections this year. So that means that patients who come to Minnesota seeking gender affirming care are legally protected against laws that might be in place in the states that they're coming from. And providers will be able to have those protections if they practice here as well. And I should mention that about 12 other states have similar protections they've put in place, though they vary a little bit depending on uh, where you are, what those protections do. So that's a group of states going in one direction. And Sage, Utah, is one of the states going in a very different direction. We heard a little bit about Kat and Kat's family. Tell us more broadly what's been happening in the state house in Utah. We've definitely seen a shift in politics in the state legislature uh, when it comes to transgender issues. About two years ago, Utah's Republican Governor Spencer Cox vetoed a ban on transgender youth participating in school sports. But the Republican supermajority overrode that veto, and ultimately the courts blocked the law, at least for now. But Kat's family have been on guard since that legislative move alone. Then Utah was the first state this year to ban gender-affirming care for transgender youth. And there's about 20 states that have done so as well, and about five have holds on such bans by the courts. So you're seeing Utah kind of go more and more in that direction. Broadly speaking, why are lawmakers pushing for these bans? What do they say they're worried about here? So the lawmakers that I have spoke to and heard give their testimony on the floor was that they're worried about the lack of evidence surrounding the impact of this medical treatment on transgender youth, even though around 30 medical associations say that gender-affirming care is safe and effective for trans youth. 
State leaders do expect this law to be challenged in the courts. However, nothing has come to fruition as of yet. But the ban on trans care becoming law was really just the straw that broke the camel's back for Kat's family. And Scott, it's really the little things that hit the hardest for the family, like leaving behind their garden. Every year over Mother's Day weekend, they buy seeds and plants for their backyard garden in their home in Utah. Well, this year, I was buying moving boxes at Lowe's to pack up our stuff. And when I saw the plants, I just sat in the parking lot and cried because it was the perfect illustration of how our lives have been turned upside down by someone who can flippantly say, well, just let the courts decide. Sitting in a nearly empty two-story house, Jen somberly recounts the events that forced her family to leave the state they love. Kat is her youngest child. The 14-year-old says they faced immense backlash since coming out as trans, including people using their dead name. That's the name given at birth. I mean, especially my school, I've been constantly harassed and actually bullied out of the school for about a month. I had to stay home and I get shivers of even thinking of going to school. I've been misgendered, teased with my dead name. Earlier this year, the Utah legislature voted to restrict access to gender-affirming care for transgender youth. State Senator Mike Kennedy, the bill sponsor, said the bill was necessary because of the lack of evidence on the impacts of gender-affirming care on minors. But dozens of medical associations agree that such care is safe and effective. Kennedy himself has questioned whether the bill meets legal muster. But I've tried, along with others, to do my best in this area. And I would bet every dollar that I have in my bank account right now that this will be litigated. Kat was scrolling Twitter down a Sherlock Holmes rabbit hole when the news popped up on their timeline. Now that the governor had signed the ban, Kat wouldn't be able to get the medical care they've been considering. People were freaking out, and I just remembered I just felt like I blacked out. And then I woke up hours later with just a tear-soaked pillow. Jen says the whole family couldn't sleep for days afterward. She noticed her physical health was declining. Kat went from honor roll to 20-plus absences in school. All of this, Jen says, left them with no option except to leave Utah. Utah and specifically Senator Kennedy and everybody else who's participated, they have forced this choice on me. How can I possibly stay and let my child be treated like this? So Kat's dad began looking for a new job. He landed one in Washington state. They put the house on the market and started throwing their lives into boxes. It was a quick decision, and no one took the move easily, but it hit Kat the hardest. It's just the only place I ever knew was where all my friends are. And knowing that I'm going to have to go to 10th grade, probably one of the craziest grades to move states from, because everyone already has their little cliques. It's just going to be, it's going to be violent. That's reporting from Sage Miller at KUER in Salt Lake City. Sage, I will say, I moved to another state in 10th grade, so that last point really resonates with me hearing that. How is is the family doing? The family is settling into their new home in Washington, but as you would know, Scott, it's definitely tough to be uprooted. And Kat still really misses Utah, their friends, and the memories that they made there. And they really value control, and they feel like that control has kind of been ripped out from underneath them. However, on the flip side, Jen says Washington feels amazing and she's cried many tears of happy relief to just feel less stress and to be able to exist in her own home. Yeah. How'd they end up in Washington State? What specifically led them there? 
I do know that Kat's dad was able to snag a job there first, but more importantly, they were looking ahead. They had considered Minnesota, but the family had concerns about how long those gender-affirming care for transgender youth protections would last because of the politics in the state. It's traditionally a purple state, and Democrats control the state for now. But they were worried that state leaders would reverse those protections if Republicans gained control again. And they really didn't want to have to pack up their stuff again and leave. And it's the fear that could become a reality for them. That is a really specific and powerful example of how the politics of a place and the current political environment affects people's lives in a very real way. So, Dana Ferguson, let's go back to you. You're in St. Paul. Is there something to that concern that the protections in place right now could go away one or two elections down the line, depending on what happens? Yeah. um, As we've talked about a little bit, Democrats have control over three levers of power in St. Paul right now. But there is a sense that in future elections that could change. The state house here is going to be up for election next year. Um, And then down the road in 2026, the Senate and the governor's office will also be on the ballot. So there's a sense among Democrats here, as well as LGBTQ groups, that there might be additional need to put these gender affirming care protections in the Constitution. And that's something that Democratic leaders have talked about. They're weighing a constitutional amendment for next year that would provide some equal rights protections under the Constitution. And they're hopeful that even if a future legislature came in and wanted to wipe out these protections, that they would be solidified in the state's constitution. Mm-hmm. So those are some uh, some choices or, or some things that might happen down the line. What else do we need to know about the protections that are in place right now in Minnesota? Yeah, I want to get to that, Scott, but I also want to give listeners just a quick heads up that we're getting to a part in this story where we're talking about suicide and youth mental health. But to answer your question, for Minnesota doctors who provide gender-affirming care, this year has been a whirlwind. Calls from patients out of state have surged in the last year with more and more bans. It's 2023 and we're making refugees within the United States of America. That's Dr. Kelsey Leonard-Smith. She practices gender-affirming care in the Twin Cities. Leonard-Smith says the clinic used to get a few calls from out-of-state patients each year, but now they're getting that many each week. In the clinic's lobby, guests are welcomed by floor-to-ceiling floral murals, and they can pick up colorful buttons that express their pronouns. Staff members press a variety of button options. If I want to she, her, I'm going to do a they, he next. More patients are coming here to start or continue hormone treatments that have been outlawed in their states. And some are making a permanent move. Clinics like this one and hospitals have had to train more providers to offer services. And they're still having trouble keeping up, says Leonard Smith. You run a real a risk of like doing wrong by trying to do right, um, trying too hard to take care of everybody so that you're not doing a good enough job and finding the right balance is really tough. We are hearing from people all over the country. Dr. Katie Miller works at Children's Minnesota in the hospital's gender health program. We've had families call from Florida, from Texas, Iowa, a lot from Iowa, um, North Dakota. Miller says patient requests have surged 40 percent at Children's Minnesota since other states began enacting bans. The hospital is working with other clinics, but it still has a one-year wait list. 
Miller says patients traveling here have a lot on their minds. I think another challenge is that people feel very afraid of what might happen next. People feel victimized by the government. It's led to just a degree of fear and anxiety about accessing medical care that I I haven't seen before. Both Miller and Leonard Smith say their out-of-state patients feel like they're becoming political refugees. But even here, they're still on edge. Here's Leonard Smith. People are updating their passports, and I know folks who bought a new car because they wanted to make sure that if they needed to drive to Canada, their car wouldn't break down. Miller says she feels like she's working under a microscope. If she gets something wrong, it could become a political talking point. But her more pressing concern is keeping her patients alive. My biggest fear is that one of my patients will commit suicide. Um, and that's, that's really pervasive. It's gotten worse. Um, we know that these laws and these bans impact the mental health of gender diverse youth. We know that trans and gender diverse youth are at much higher risk of suicide. Both doctors say they worry about the ongoing trauma, but they plan to stay the course in Minnesota to be there for their patients, no matter where they come from. And that's Dana Ferguson with Minnesota Public Radio, who is uh, talking to me along with Sage Miller of KUER in Salt Lake City about what's going on in two different states here. And just a reminder, if you or someone you know is in crisis, you can call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, just those three digits, 988 Dana, one of the doctors in the story uh, talked about how people are just afraid of what might happen next and the uncertainty there. How are the people that you you spoke to dealing with that? Yeah, that's right. Democrats and LGBTQ groups say they hope to market Minnesota as a refuge state for transgender people and their families and serve as a national model. Here's Outfront Minnesota Executive Director Kat Rohn, and Outfront is an advocacy group. Sometimes we're too humble about our wins here. And I think, you know, this is one that we should all celebrate about creating a state that's more inclusive at a time when our communities are under attack. But I do want to add that no Republicans in the state house supported the law. So let's go back to Utah one more time with Sage Miller. Sage, you mentioned the possibility of, of a court challenge to the care ban that we started this conversation with. What might that look like? So we haven't seen a challenge uh, to the state law just yet, but the ACLU of Utah says it's working on one. And from there, you know, it'll go through the traditional methods, work its way up the courts, and they will decide in Utah whether the law should stand. But for now, the ban on gender-affirming care for transgender youth in Utah is here to stay. That's Sage Miller, a political reporter with KUER in Salt Lake City, and Dana Ferguson, who also covers politics for Minnesota Public Radio. Thanks to both of you. Thank Thank you. you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The British band Blur, led by singer-songwriter Damon Albarn, has been around for over 30 years. But NPR Music contributor Matthew Perpetua says the band's latest album, The Ballad of Darren, is all about where Albarn and the band stand today. Blur were one of the biggest Britpop bands of the 1990s, uh, along with Oasis and Pulp and The Verve. They kind of exemplify the Britpop genre or the project or this, however you'd want to loosely identify, like all these bands that were kind of hitting big in England at the same time in the mid-90s. I'm not the first. 
but the tone of this record, it's more of a lived-in kind of sadness, and it's pretty clear that Damon Albarn has gone through a breakup, and a lot of these songs are alluding to that, but, you know, not enough details to kind of make it, you know, something you really need to dig into. It's just more you get that he has gone through something pretty difficult, but you can also tell that it's it's from the perspective of someone who's gone through things before. St. Charles Square um, it has a very David Bowie feeling, but not necessarily like the David Bowie a lot of people think about. It's more like the David Bowie of the, maybe like the last 10 years or so of his career where he, he sounds older. And Damon Albarn has you know, kind of used David Bowie as a reference point in the past, but I think not so much in the way he sings. So I think right in, in that song, he kind of takes on that kind of like, it's kind of a deep baritone, but it also sounds a little manic. So many people standing there I walk towards them Into the floodlights But Arsis, it has kind of a ragged beauty to it. It sounds like the positive side of having gone through things before, having dealt with traumas and moved through them, where you can kind of hear a hope in his voice that, th that he can change, that things will get better, that I don't think would really come through in the music that they had made in the past. His lyrics tend to be very cynical and negative, and kind of hearing him have this hope in his voice, even if it's not like the strongest hope in the world, feels very uplifting in context for him and for Blur. It kind of communicates this hope and healing. The thing I really find compelling about The Ballad of Darren is that it's really unapologetic about coming from a middle-aged point of view. And, you know, it kind of understands that to age gracefully as an artist, you kind of need to offer your listeners a perspective that they couldn't offer when they were younger. I think there's there's a tendency for some artists to try to, you know, reconnect with, you know, how they felt or how they performed when they were younger. And they're not trying to do that. They're just trying to be exactly who they are in this moment in time. It's a record that was written and recorded entirely in 2023. So it really is a, a snapshot of a band that seems pretty happy to be doing what they're doing and grateful for what they have together. That was NPR music contributor Matthew Perpetua. Blur's new album, The Ballad of Darren, is out now. This is NPR News. And thanks for following the news with us here on 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Stay with us. Up next at 6, the New Yorker Radio Hour. And this evening, the making of the motion picture Oppenheimer. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. In the forecast, mostly clear skies overnight. Lows drop to the 60s, sunny upper 80s tomorrow. And again, on Tuesday right now in Boston, it is still 85 degrees. And for ideas on navigating around the Sumner Tunnel closure, you can visit WBUR.org before you head in or out 
of Boston this evening. A lot of good information for you at uh, WBUR.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. This week, President Biden will establish a national monument honoring Emmett Till and his mother, Mamie Till Mobley. Emmett was the black teenager from Chicago who was tortured and killed in 1955 after being accused of whistling at a white woman. His death helped galvanize the civil rights movement. The 57-member Organization of Islamic Cooperation suspended the status of Sweden's special envoy over Koran burnings that sparked a mass protest in a number of Muslim countries. And UPS and the Teamsters Union are set to meet Tuesday to resume contract negotiations. Union members authorized a strike if they can't agree to a deal by July 31st when the contract expires. A strike would affect about 340,000 drivers and package handlers. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring their professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow, and I'm back with NPR's Rachel Martin for another conversation from her series called Enlighten Me. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Scott. Okay, so I've got another question for you. Okay. Do you ever go into a conversation with someone expecting fully that it's going to be about topic a Mm -hmm. and then you start talking and things kind of shift in real time and all of a sudden you realize that you're not talking about topic a something else has revealed itself in the conversation you weren't expecting that moment is intoxicating to me the moment you realize that you are actually getting to the more consequential stuff you are talking about the thing you should be talking about so this definitely happens and i feel like it happens in a good way and in a bad way. And I think the more memorable things are there is something in the air, unresolved, and yeah. you're talking about, like, the forks in the kitchen, and then it is very clear you are not talking about the <laughs> forks in the kitchen. You are talking about something else. Right. And sometimes in the bad way, it gets heated quickly, but I find that often is a good thing because then you're actually talking about what you need to talk about, right? Yeah, and this comes up in journalism all the time, right? It was actually one of the reasons I went into this work was – to create space for those kinds of moments and then to have the freedom and permission to kind of follow them in conversation wherever they go. And I bring this whole thing up because it happened recently to me with one of our guests. His name is Hanif Abdurraqib. He's a poet and he's a music writer from Columbus, Ohio. And I wanted to talk to him for this series because he writes about music with this kind of spiritual reverence. And So I thought that that's what our conversation was going to be about. But from just even our first few moments, it became clear that what he really wanted to talk about was something far more complicated than that. Mm. And at this point, I'm going to give our listeners a heads up that we are going to be talking about grief and suicide in this conversation. But it was a really profound and beautiful 
interaction with him, and I can't wait for you to hear it. And an unexpected one. Yeah, let's, totally. All right, let's hear that conversation. How would you define your spiritual identity, if you have one? I feel like at this point in my life, I was, so I was raised Muslim. Mm-hmm. And at this point in my life, I am someone who, at the very least, feels required to believe in the presence of an afterlife hmm. because my spiritual identity is by now so inextricably linked to loss and the amount of people I've lost, people I love a great deal. And I think one thing that propels me forward is believing that there is a place beyond this where we might commune again. But I also don't necessarily believe in the rigidity of an afterlife as it's presented in text, in biblical text or or any religious text. Um, I don't believe one has to to earn their way into the potential to see the people they love again through a set of a set of good deeds or a set of good works. I, and, uh, you know, I'm not motivated to do the things I do that some might consider good because I'm um, afraid of what my eternal life would look like. Hmm. <laughs> but, but I do think that my spiritual relationship is almost entirely defined by, um, by my understanding of loss. Can you tell me about some of the people that you lost? I know you lost your mom when you were pretty young. Yeah, I lost my mom when I was uh, 12 going on 13. Uh-huh. And, you know, a lot of friends uh, died by suicide or drug overdoses or I think broadly the way I think about it is they decided the world was not tenable for them, you know, because I think that's for me, at least in my mind, as someone who is also quite frankly not always wanted to be uh, who, who has, uh, I don't even want to say struggled with, but lives with a sometimes flimsy relationship to being alive. Um, I think that it's a series of um, questioning the value of staying here, whatever here is. You know, there's a difference, I think, between like, I want to be alive and I want to be here. And sometimes the option is I don't want to be here. And the only way to not be here is to not be alive. You know, it's um, for for me, at least it's like a hazy thing. And so um, but it's kind of like a series of inquiries, like repeated inquiries. And I think for a lot of people I, I, I know and love and still or knew and loved and still still love greatly, those inquiries were not returning um, results. And, I, you know, I, I don't think that's a failure of theirs as much as I think that's more often a failure of the world. Mm-hmm. May I ask if music helped you get through your mom's death? I don't know if it did. You know, I think that the the, uh, the like most romantic answer is yes in some ways. Music, if nothing else, builds these really small monuments to people that I can always hold on to. There are songs that operate as monuments to people I've lost. Hmm. And so I don't know if that helps necessarily. It does not bring back a person I love. And it actually doesn't even um, refurnish the memory of them in any new way or sharp way. Mm-hmm. Memory is tricky because as I get older, you know, a few years ago, I realized I could not remember the sound of my mother's voice anymore. Mm-hmm. My dear friend, Tyler, who we lost when I was in my early twenties, I don't remember what his laugh sounds like anymore. And there is no song that can kind of refurnish the sonics of their living, you know, yeah. the sounds of their living. But there are songs that can kind of 
act as this silent film, this song that takes me back to a place where I'm watching a silent film of their life. Mm-hmm. And that, that serves a purpose, surely. I hesitate to say that it's helpful, but it's, not, it's certainly not detrimental to the process. May I ask for a detail on that? Is there a song that is a, a monument, a mental monument to your mom? Yeah, Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody is one. But more prominently, Nina Simone's version of Pirate Jenny. There's a live 1964 version. You people can watch while I'm scrubbing these floors and I'm scrubbing the floors while you're gawking. It's harrowing and it's haunting. And for some reason, I remember this song so vividly because I remember being on the floor of the living room of our first kind of small apartment while my mother was in the kitchen cooking and humming along to it. Then one night there's a scream in the night. I was maybe five or six. I remember running my hands through the carpet and, and watching my mom in the kitchen while the song was playing. And I still, that's like a vivid memory. One of the first memories that I, I have and hold on to. So what happened to you then when you fast forward through adolescence and you're in your 20s and you have these buddies and it goes back to what you said before that a lot of them were making some fatal choices and and choosing to not be here anymore. Like that's a lot of loss, Hanif, to have lost your mom and then to lose really good friends. By that point in your 20s when, when that started happening to you, had you worked through the loss of your mom to the point where you were more emotionally fluent to process those losses, or did it all just accumulate in you? Well, I'm of a belief that one doesn't move past, or at least in my life, I, I don't move past loss. Uh, grief makes a home, I think, within us if we allow it to. I believe at that point I was learning to be something I know now, something I'm committed to now. I believe that I I should be a, a generous steward to my grief. I should make mm-hmm. a home for it within me that is generous and, and has a depth to it. If I tend generously to my grief, then it then it treats me well in return. That means that each time I'm confronted with it, I have a newer depth of tools to move through it. And understanding that grief is not only tied to death or loss, but the grief of the various heartbreaks that we live with now. When I was in my 20s, I was also, I mean, I was also someone who was struggling with the idea of, of being here and being alive still. And, you know, there there are points where I feel like it is miraculous that I survived certain eras, but I think that I've had points in my life where I, curiosity has won out. Curiosity has won out over my own nihilistic impulses. You mean curiosity about what could happen next if you stick around? Yeah, I kind of want to see what's on the other side of a of an hour or a day. Uh-huh. I mean, the, the my process now, if I'm in a state of depression or anxiety, uh, both of which I like have lived with for much of my life, I always ask myself in the morning, how good do I feel about being alive today? Thankfully, now, these days, more times than not, the answer is at the very least pretty good. Um, some days it's like very good other days it's like pretty good but yeah. the thing about it is that there are some days where it's the answer is not very good at all yeah. so then it becomes a descending clock it's no longer how do I feel about being alive today it's how do I feel about being alive this hour 
And if mm-hmm. the answer is still not very good, then it's okay. How do I feel about being alive in the next 20 minutes? If the answer is mm-hmm. still not very good, then it gets a little urgent. And it's like, well, what, what curiosity can propel me towards the next five minutes? Mm-hmm. And then I'll find something else. Mm-hmm. If I move through the day enough, I will find an accumulation of things that propel me to the next day where the answer might be different and better. Love alone does not equate to survival always. It's not this vague hovering thing of, well, you're so loved, you know, it requires a bit more. So I guess I'm curious if your spiritual identity is so tethered to, to loss in this way, right? Like you have a a spiritual notion about an afterlife because you have lost people and you want to see them again. But does that mean that there's no function for spirituality and the joy and meaning that can bring to a life in the present for you? Is it all a projection of what happens after you die? Um, I think, I think it's, that's the most useful projection for me. Uh-huh. But I also really do find that... Um, you know, I don't find myself, say, like talking to God. Um, I don't find myself in conversation with God unless I am curious about why something is unfolding the way it has, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do fast every year. You know, I, I do Ramadan every year. And I do that because I love the discipline it requires. I, I think there's a real spiritual discipline there that I'm drawn to. Mm-hmm. you know um because it's not just not eating and drinking you're also just supposed to be clear-headed and operate in a way that allows you to approach it with a with an openness and it's a it's like a holistic approach and so you know there's that but i i don't really find myself in awe of or eager to have say like a conversation with with god that will answer any questions which I, I, but I, I think I am someone who operates with belief though. You know, like I, I believe that um, I will at some point perhaps see the people I love again. And I think there, there's a richness to that belief that, um, that holds me up. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about you know, your day, how your day goes can be determined by where grief sits in you. Could you describe what a day looks like when grief is treating you well? Like, Do memories of those who you've lost, your mom, your friend Tyler, others, are they more present? Like, Walk me through what it looks like when grief is treating you well on a certain day. I think grief treats me best when I'm channeling, I'm kind of channeling the people I've lost through my, through my current living. For example, the best example I can give of this also goes back to music. There are a couple songs that I love that I'm really drawn to, but they're not songs that I think I love. They're songs that I think I'm loving because I know that Tyler would love them. Hmm. And so I am loving them through him, you know, or, there are things I know how to make to cook or bake because I watched my mother do it. 
Mm-hmm. And so the, and these things are just like inherent to me. Like I just know them. And I think, you know, grief treats us well when we kind of, when these, these parts of people that we've gotten to enjoy, um, when they greet us, when they, they come to us and they, they greet us warmly, just repeatedly. And um, that's the real gift, I think, is to say that I am not just one person, I am multiple versions of a person and some of those versions of myself have been loved immensely by people who were so incredible and through their loving of me, I have a, a richer texture and that texture allows me to navigate the world in ways that I am just on my own, not equipped to do. And that means that on my best days, I get through the world, I get through um, the challenges of living, navigated gently by a whole host of people who, even without them knowing it, or maybe with, with them knowing it, but I think a lot of times without them knowing it, have created a generous blueprint through which I can, I've learned to maneuver this life well. And um, that is the richest praise I can give anyone's living, is that it echoes repeatedly through my survival. Thank you for that. Hanif, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. I so appreciate it. Hanif Abdurraqib, his most recent book is called A Little Devil in America. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. <laughs>